today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends and feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, Conservative leader Andrew Scheer still daring the Prime Minister to take him to court. Will he bite? A week ago, we talked about a climate change report issued by the government that said Canada was warming faster than the rest of the planet. The other side of that story. And New Zealand has made the commitment to restrict semi-automatic military-style weapons. What do they know that North America doesn't? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Andrew Scheer uh, yesterday tried to provoke the Prime Minister yesterday into following through on his threat to sue uh, the leader of the opposition for comments he had made in regard to uh, this was after uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould, former Attorney General, released recorded uh, recorded conversation between her and the Clerk of the Privy Council, uh, Michael Wernick. Uh, it's kind of odd that uh, the Prime Minister has taken this approach um, simply because it just keeps this story in the news. And, and here we go again uh, into another week. Uh, with Jane Philpott trying to uh, question whether uh, she was, um, uh, I guess, uh, fired from the ca- cabinet correctly without a vote. Like the, I- I'm not sure the outcome would have been any different there. Uh, and then, of course, this ongoing uh, threat of libel action uh, against the leader of the opposition. To talk more about all, actually, you know, I'm going to give you an update on this. Andrew Scheer did his best on Wednesday to provoke the prime minister into following through on his threat. Uh, to sue him over alleged uh, libelous criticism of the SNC-Lavalin affair. The Conservative leader uh, leader repeated word for word the March 29th statement that prompted Trudeau's lawyer to send him notice of a potential libel suit. For good measure, Scheer did it outside the House of Commons, making the point that he's not trying to hide behind parliamentary privilege that protects him or protects anything that he has said uh, in the chamber from lawsuits. To talk more about all of this, Barry Kay is with us, political science professor at Wilfrid Laurier University. He is with us now. Barry, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Good afternoon, Scott. So good or bad idea to follow through with this lawsuit? Does this just not keep everything moving? Oh, it's all theatrics. Look, you know what? I really think it's just a reflection of the sad state of our politics, that we don't really talk about issues anymore. Uh, we don't talk about principles. We just sort of have the, the silly food fight among the leaders. And I think it's a reflection of the fact that all of the leaders are, are sort of in bad odor, or at least have not been able to capture the, the public imagination. Uh, this issue, I mean, should the, um, the lawsuit proceed, and it may, I, I can't say it won't, but should it proceed, that's going to be, be months, perhaps years, before anything really gets resolved. And it's really just a matter of the, each of the party leaders do, doing what they can to sort of you know, go into a snit about their opponents, hoping that, in fact, this will cause the public to have some attention toward them, at least, at least on the part of their supporters, if not the Canadian public. The fact is that we've seen, although Trudeau, I think, ca- captured the public imagination for four years ago when he was elected, uh, I think of late his his performance has become very dismal, and that it's no better for either um, for either the conservative leader Scheer or for that matter the new democratic leader. At least he he now has a, a seat in the house, so he may get a little bit more attention. But none of our political leaders have caught the public attention, and they're sort of reduced to this kind of nonsense in terms of making threats and trying to tr- trying to antagonize their opponents in public, hoping that they will then overreact themselves, hoping that they can kind of lure them into bad behavior. Now, that's not to say that the leaders aren't capable of bad behavior. And I'm not. And, uh, if nothing else, Trudeau has certainly shown that he has no sense or ability to handle crisis management. The the whole uh, Raybo um, I- incident in Philpott has, has been. Um, 
you know, is, has been a disaster for them. But interestingly, it hasn't had nearly as negative an impact on Liberal Party support as it should have. The fact is people aren't impressed with Trudeau, but they're not impressed with sheer either. So this is the kind of behavior they reduce themselves to. Why do you think this story resonated with the average Canadian? It's it's pretty deep into the political weeds. Why do you think this stuck out? Well, I'm not sure it I'm not sure how many people are really impressed with either of them. I think you know, my general sense is they're unimpressed with everybody now. Uh, but certainly the advisors to the different political leaders are suggesting that they should not allow themselves to be out uh, out antagonized by their opponent, that they should behave just as badly toward the alternative as, as the alternative is towards them. Whether or not this is affecting the public support, I'm not at all certain. Um, we, we've seen the there was a time, uh, goodness, before the, uh, the Wilson-Raybo thing broke back, I guess, in February, where the liberals had a modest three, four, point lead in most polls, remembering that there's a plus or minus three toward that anyway. Ever since then, the conservatives might be up a point or two. Sometimes they're tied. But what this has really suggested to me is things haven't changed all that much. Uh, the Trudeau government was, should have been embarrassed by the way they handled this. Uh, um, at the end of the day, if uh, for whatever reason, good or bad, the prime minister thinks somebody shouldn't be in cabinet. They shouldn't be in cabinet, and they'll be removed. Whether or not that's that's a good decision or not is up to the, the public to respond to. But the fact is is that um, it hasn't been nearly as negative in terms of public opinion as it should be, and that's because I think that the, the public isn't any more impressed with Sheer and the conservatives than they are with the, um, with the liberals. Interestingly, the benefit, to the extent that there was a beneficiary as a result of the Wilson-Raybo thing as, um, as the liberals dropped, it wasn't really the conservatives so much. They hardly ticked up at all. The NDP started picking up support. The NDP vote had been suppressed because people weren't, their supporters weren't particularly impressed with Singh. Um, I, my, my bottom line in all of this is that I don't think Canadians are particularly impressed with anybody at the moment. Uh, prior uh, prior to this past weekend, where all this lawsuit stuff started uh, coming up, uh, Trudeau was 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 uh, complaining the opposition was dragging all of this out just to make political hay of it. Uh, but then the lawsuit letter came out, and and still the possibility floating around that SNC Lavalin could uh, be granted the deal from the new attorney general that the old attorney general would not grant them. Are those two things not keeping this alive? I mean, they've kicked out Jody Wilson Raybould, Phil Potts gone. Why why don't they just move on from this? Well, that's the the smart move. I don't think there's any points to be gained by trying to intervene on behalf of SNC Lavalin at this point. I think the point has been made that they, they acted improperly, uh, and whether or not Wilson Raybo behaved appropriately or not, the fact is the Prime Minister has the authority to decide who he wants to have uh, in his or her cabinet. Uh, and but what we see is that the, um, uh, the, the, the parties are just keeping this going, hoping to score some points. The fact that they're playing politics, of course they're playing politics. They all play politics all the time. And the, the, the fact that they're accusing their opponents of playing politics is only because they don't have anything better, more substantive to say about them. That This is just the way politics operates most of the time. I won't say all the time. It needn't always be like that. But most of the time, the, the, each side is more concerned with embarrassing their opponents than they are with generating much substantively to, to interest the Canadian public. And clearly, at the moment, nothing much is happening at all. The Liberals don't even have significant policy proposals uh, that are, are going to basically change the metric. This is interesting because we're within, what, six, uh, six and a half months of an election. And one would think that, indeed, the Liberals would be trying to put new ideas on the table to try to uh, encourage enthusiasm among the public. 
and they may yet, but at the moment that we haven't seen much of it. It seemed that last week there were some Quebec liberals floating the idea that the SNC-Lavalin deal may be granted, that the new attorney general will do that. Do you, do you think they'll touch that? Will, will, they, will they still give SNC-Lavalin some sort of deal, or is, is, would that just be the final nail in the coffin here? I don't think it helps the Liberals nationally. Um, Quebec is another issue, and indeed, they're because you know the company is based there. I guess um, there are Liberals in Quebec that would like to see some sort of more favorable treatment. Um, the Prime Minister can do what what he sees fit in this situation. I don't think it's a smart move. I think the Liberals are probably in pretty good shape in Quebec at the moment, anyway. Um, and indeed, um, the part of the West is not really competitive for them, but Ontario is. And I think any um, Boats that they would gain in Quebec by making uh, throwing a bone to the SNC-Lavalin people could possibly hurt them in Ontario, where there are even more seats at stake. Uh, what about Jane Philpott coming out this week and saying that uh, she's not sure that she was ejected correctly, there should have been a vote of some sort? Um, what's her position in all this? It sounds as if she was trying to get back in. Yeah, possibly. Look, uh, Jane Philpott had been thought, as had uh, Jody uh, Wilson-Raybo, um, as among the, the sharper cabinet ministers, and they certainly had important portfolios. And it's perhaps too bad that they've gotten sort of squeezed into this. I think Philpott acted more in sympathy with her friend than, than anything else. But um, it's, it's hard to see that at this point that Philpott's got a political career in, in her future. Um, it's possible Wilson-Raybo in that, that Vancouver Granville seat could switch parties and maybe have a shot because she is well-known there, and indeed, it's a seat where the NDP could become uh, competitive. Should she want to run with them, she might even run for the Greens, although I think the NDP probably would provide a greater chance of winning the seat. She might have a future. Philpott deserves a future, but I'm not sure she has a future. The uh, the Stouffville riding, the Markham Stouffville riding that she represents, uh, I think, is not one that Philpott can easily move to another party and then have a shot at winning it. I'm not sure that Wilson Raybow is going to either, but she at least, I think, has the possibility of, of life in, uh, in Ottawa after this event. I think for Philpott, unfortunately, because I, I've, I've heard many positive things about her, um, I, I think her political career is probably over. Is this fair? That's another question. Hmm. Um, have the Liberals treated her badly, as she's claiming? Quite possibly. But at the end of the day, uh, the Prime Minister will decide who's going to be in his cabinet and ultimately who's going to be in his caucus. In theory, I guess the local, I gather the Liberal Association in um, Stouffville is very much sympathetic to, um, to Philpott, and many of them have, been re- have resigned. And in theory, she could perhaps run as an independent. I have a hunch that that kind of riding is not likely one where independents would do as well, but I could be wrong. So my sense is that Wilson Raybo may have a shot at staying in Parliament if she switches parties. I think it's going to be more challenging for Philpott. But again, the, the Liberals, you know, one can criticize them, and everyone's doing it. But the fact is that the, uh, the, the Prime Minister can decide who's going to be in his cabinet, who's going to be in his caucus, and quite frankly, who's going to be able to get the Liberal nomination in the various ridings around the country. If, if the local Liberal Association should nominate Philpott and uh, Trudeau opposes it, she is not going to run as a Liberal. She can run as an independent. What about provincial politics? There's that, that's been floated around. Well, that's three and a half years away. Uh, yeah. I'm... I, look, I, I don't want to preclude anything. Um, I think if it was a provincial election that was looming, uh, she has some resonance and that could work. And maybe, uh, what would it be, 2022 is when the next provincial election is likely to occur, possibly. She could run municipally, I guess, too. Um, my guess, though, is that if the, the liberals want, don't, don't want her to be part of the party or to be a candidate for the party, she's not going to be a, a candidate. And I don't think she has the 
profile to be able to win is an, not many independents get elected, particularly in ridings, suburban ridings like that. Um, Wilson Raybo, as I was just saying, could have a shot if she went with another party. But I think that the days for both of them as liberals are probably gone. Is their part in this whole situation over? I mean, other than what may happen with SNC-Lavalin and moving forward, is this it for them? I mean, is there anything else that we don't know that they can tell us? I mean, this is pretty much over, isn't it, for them? Yeah, it seems to me that the story has basically been told. Um, there's always a possibility there may be some other hidden information that we haven't heard yet, but they 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 basically uh, did what they could to create attention to what they thought was malfeasance on the part of the prime minister. And quite frankly, I'm sympathetic to them. But uh, if the prime minister is is still retains the popularity of his caucus, and, uh, and we're going to have an election, this may be an election issue. That that the, the, the greatest irony of all of this is that in fact it hasn't hurt the liberals more. I, it has hurt them some, and we're now probably. If one looks at the kind of polling numbers that have been out there, we could well be in minority government situation if an election were held today. But the election will be six, six and a half months from now. Other things will happen. Undoubtedly, there will be campaign issues. This does not reverberate positively for the, the liberals, but the conservatives have not been able to exploit it effectively because, quite frankly, Sheer has not been able to have, make that much impact with the Canadian population. How will the prime minister run this campaign coming up compared to his first? I remember asking many experts way back when if he can run the same campaign twice. And before all this, many said yes. Can he now? Uh, yeah, look, you know, claiming that he's doing this on behalf of it because he's a feminist and because he's concerned with the indigenous population. I mean, the fact that uh, Wilson Raybo is indigenous, frankly, doesn't change anything. But, uh, no, I, I think his credibility on, on those concerns is, is hurt. I think he'll they'll probably make more of an attack against the conservatives. Frankly, in Ontario, where we are, I think... Um, Perhaps they can use some of the unpopular measures associated with the provincial conservative government to suggest that the federal conservatives might do the same thing. If I were advising Trudeau in terms of his, and Ontario's important because there's more swing ridings here, more ridings that are at stake here than any other part of the country, um, that indeed he would basically make an attack to the conservatives or two ideologically to the right, uh, point out the, the problems associated with um, the provincial government of Ford. I'm sure he will talk about the uh, the, the climate issue, uh, global warming. That is an issue that I think there is distinction between him and the Conservatives. There may be others. Uh, there may be other specific policies he generates as well. But I think he's going to probably, I would advise him to basically go after the Conservatives more than to rest on his laurels about his high-minded proposal of having equal representation of men and women. Uh, I, I think there's been a taint associated with this. I don't think that's the, the smartest strategy. But I'm sure he pays people much more money than and he's going to get better advice than he's going to get from <laughs> me on this. Six months out, a lot of things could happen. The strongest card, though, that um, Trudeau has, first of all, he's only been in one term. Usually governments are given at least a couple of terms before they're ter- turfed out. Not true for the NDP. When the NDP's in power, they usually lose it after one term in Ontario. But um, but the, the fact that, um, that Scheer is not seen as a particularly... Uh, compelling figure has not been able to orchestrate issues in a way to to, to effectively challenge uh, Trudeau as seen on this uh, by this issue. I think those are probably the strongest cards Trudeau has going for him. But goodness, we have an, the elections over six months from now, and lots of things are going to, lots of shoes are going to drop. How big an issue will climate change be in this upcoming election? Is this is this a kitchen table issue for Canadians? Not for everyone, uh, and frankly, in general, the environment is less of an issue. But you are asking me what. What would Trudeau be advised to do? The environment is an issue where he can put distance between himself and the conservatives. Mm-hmm. And he can use um, the un- 
I'm not sure. I, I haven't seen a lot of data, frankly, on the provincial election. And, and um, I may be influenced in part because of, of some of the cuts to education, which uh, trouble me uh, at the provincial level. But basically a scare campaign, if I was advising the liberals as to how to deal with the conservatives, it would be a scare campaign about what a conservative government might do in terms of, of, of challenging the social institutions and social programs in the province. I th- part of that could be um, global warming. I don't think global warming is a, a, is a, a, a ballot issue for most Canadians. But that's the kind of thing I would suggest that the, uh, the liberals might try in order to put distance between them and themselves and the conservatives. Barry Kay has been with us, political science professor, Wilfrid Laurier University. Barry, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. You might remember a a week ago or or so, um, we uh, had some experts on in regard to an article that uh, was released by the government. And the government released the report in regards to climate change in this country and uh, warned that warming is happening twice as fast in Canada as it is on the rest of the planet. Uh, however, um, and, you know, this this was, uh, I guess, subsidized through the government's environmental, environmental ministry and such and, and painted a pretty bleak picture. We think Canada, we're small. We're not really making that much of a footprint. Uh, I guess we are per capita because we've got lots, uh, you know, uh, lots of land and, and very few people to, to go from one end of it to the other. Uh, but now, uh, Dr. Ross McKittrick, a professor of economics and CBE fellow in Sustainable Commerce Department of Economics and Finance at the University of Guelph, has penned an article which is in the National Post. It says, hold the panic. Canada just warmed 1.7 degrees and thrived. He's got a little different opinion on all of this. And again, you can read this uh, article in uh, the National Post. Saving Canada warmed twice as fast as the whole planet doesn't prove anything, says Ross, and he's with us now. Ross, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Ross, how are we to balance this? How are we to uh, uh, wade through uh, what is fact? What is fiction? If if you speak up like you have here, you know you're a climate change denier. Are you? Is that what the story is here, Ross? What are your thoughts on this? Well, I don't take issue with their point that uh, Canada warmed, say, twice as fast as the global average. All right, let's talk about this article that came out last week. Uh, give give people who may not have caught the article uh, the gist of it and what happened. Um. So this was a report from Environment Canada just reviewing the state of temperature changes across the country since 1948. Um, 1948 is chosen because that's when our official weather records begin. Although we have temperature records most places across the country a long way back, uh, often into the 1800s. But they they use 1948 because that's where they have data pretty much around the country. One of the points I made in my article was... Um, most of the world is covered in oceans, and whenever you have a warming trend around the world, the land warms faster than the oceans. That's accepted by everybody, and Environment Canada has pointed that out many times themselves. So any country that you pick would have warmed faster than the global average because they're all on land. And so that claim that we're warming twice as fast as the global average or or whatever the fraction is, it would be true of any number of countries that you pick. It doesn't mean that that country is emitting more or there's something unusual going on in that particular country. Um, We also have a large chunk of Arctic 
uh, in Canada. And the Arctic tends to warm faster than the average as well. And again, that's true under any warming trend that takes place. So um, there was a lot of interesting and important information in that report, but I think by highlighting that claim about we're warming twice as fast as the global average, it's kind of misleading because while it may be true, it doesn't indicate a problem. It's just the way the system works, and it's it's a result of the fact that our country is on land and not out in the middle of the ocean. You were talking about other valuable information within that report. What was in there that perhaps we may have missed? Because that certainly did, uh, you know, if you're a climate change uh, uh, advocate in, in, in trying desperately to get the country off of fossil fuel, uh, you're going to obviously be attracted to those types of headlines. But what, what else was in there that, that, that's, that was relevant? Um, well, one of the points that came out was how little change there's been in precipitation patterns. Um, we often hear that the problem about climate change isn't that we're going to warm up slightly, it's that we'll get a lot more extreme weather and extreme downpour events. And they look carefully at that data and report that uh, there's no confidence attached to uh, any trends in, in those data sets. And Environment Canada has other reports out on this same subject and other data sets that show, if anything, we're getting fewer heavy downpour events than we used to. As far as the temperature changes themselves, there are some regions of the country's country, like the Maritimes, that had hardly any warming, and other regions that had a lot of warming. And bear in mind that all of this happened over an interval where the country as a whole got a lot better off most people's lives improved dramatically on any scale that you, you care to measure, especially income and education and health and things like that. So putting it into perspective, these were small changes in comparison to everything else that we experienced. So uh, what is your feeling on uh, climate change and what the federal government is proposing? This, is, this certainly seems to be a top election issue for them. What are your thoughts on this? Are, some will, may say, would some say you're a climate change denier? <laughs> well, I have no idea what people mean by that term. Uh, I've been studying it for a long time. And as far as Canadian data goes, I've published very detailed analyses of of trends and, and changes all across the country. I, I use the same data that everybody else uses on this. One of the points I try to emphasize is anytime someone reduces this to a single slogan, especially a single scary slogan, they're almost always trying to pull one over on you. Uh, again, going back to the temperature changes, one of the things that comes out in the report is the big changes tended to be in winter, in the coldest part of winter. Relatively small changes took place in the summer. So if we're going to relate that to what affects people's lives, well, we know that that's actually good for people, that um, cold weather is much deadlier than warm weather. So if they want to follow their own reasoning carefully and, and describe all the changes that happened and then assess, was this good or bad for the country, then um, they have to be fair about that and say, you know, some of these changes actually were beneficial for us. Lengthen the growing season out on the prairies, for instance. That's not a bad thing. Uh, we hear, though, forest fires because of dryness, uh, the opposite floods, uh, more extreme type of weather. These are all warnings we're getting. I mean, it sounds as if the world is coming to an end in the next decade. Yeah, um, you're exactly right. They they tend to move off the warming topic onto those extremes. We measure all those things. 
forest fires in Canada, the number of forest fires, uh, the federal government puts those numbers out every year. They've actually been trending down in numbers since the 1990s. What about so California the, and places like that where they've had issues over the last year or so? Because that's, you know, they've all, uh, you know, even the president got in all of this and what caused these. And this was an opportunity for uh, people to use this uh, to, to promote uh, climate change. Um, as far as the number of forest fires in the U.S., they're way down since early in the 20th century. Now the numbers are dominated by um, forest fire suppression and forest management activities, so it's really hard to make those comparisons. The explosive nature of the California forest fires had a lot to do with past fire suppression activity, which means there's a large buildup of kindling in the forest that didn't used to be the case. Um, here in Canada, which is where I... I, I know the numbers better. Uh, the National Forestry Service has a website, and uh, they, it's easy to verify that um, we have fewer forest fires per year than we did back in the 1990s. Also, Environment Canada, as I mentioned, says they, they don't see a trend at this point in extreme downpour and flooding events. All of that may change. You know, Maybe in the future there will be a connection that emerges and global warming will have negative influences on all these things. I'm, I'm not saying that's not a possibility, but we have to, if we're going to have these big reports, I would like them to be upfront about this, to say these are the kinds of hazards people are worried about. We just don't see those hazards having emerged at this point. Has this discussion, um, what are your thoughts on this discussion and how it has dominated politics and how it has dominated uh, society? You know, I'm a guy in my 50s. I remember, uh, you know, back in the 70s, we were talking about pollution in the Great Lakes. Uh, Great Lakes, we're talking about getting rid of uh, leaded gasoline. Uh, the ozone layer was an issue. And, and all of those se- things seem to be rectified through science and technology. It didn't involve a painful transition for society. In other words, you know, pricing fossil fuel uh, into the stratosphere, pricing electricity into the stratosphere uh, in order to pay for all of this. Um, How come we got through those frightening um, uh, uh, situations way back when, but this one is going to bring down mankind or humankind? This is going to cripple us all. the severity seems much more extreme now, as extreme as the weather, I guess, than it did back then. But didn't we have the same sorts of problems? Why Why is this one different? Well, what's different about carbon dioxide, uh, which is the, the gas in question here, is that we can't really decouple <clears throat> fossil fuel use and carbon dioxide emissions the way we were able to decouple particulates and sulfur dioxide and other types of pollution emissions. So with acid rain, uh, we figured out ways of using fuels while adding scrubbers to the smokestacks and um, basically allowing us to keep burning fuels without releasing a lot of sulfur dioxide. No one's figured out a way to do that for carbon dioxide. So uh, for the people that really want to make climate change the top priority that overrides every other concern we may face, their message is you just have to stop using fossil fuels. Um, there may yet emerge a technological solution, though, where we uh, we can scrub CO2 from smokestacks. But otherwise, I think before we go running down that road, uh, we actually need to have an honest conversation about, uh, first of all, how accurate these model forecasts are, because some of them have been shown to way overestimate the issue, but also um, how 
how much impact these changes actually have, and wouldn't we better, be better just to adapt to them and live with them? So where are you on this, Ross? You, you know, you have, you, you've studied this for a long time. You've seen how governments have reacted. You can see how, for this current federal government, this, this is a, a, an extremely top priority uh, for them, um, that it's all about stopping fossil fuel use as soon as possible, penalizing those that are using it or are polluting. What should we be doing? What's the best way to realistically get a handle on this? Where I am on this issue is that I think the best current research that we have based on studying the actual trends over the last 150 years and the the um, behavior of the models that match the data best is that this is going to continue to be a, a very small, gradual type of change over the next 100 or 200 years, and we wouldn't have any trouble adapting to it along the way. And but at the same time, fossil fuel use is so valuable, so integral to the global economy, and so absolutely essential for development for the the, per, the currently poor countries will only be able to develop if they continue to have access to fossil fuels. So that has to be our continuing priority. Now, if, if new information emerges that changes that, we would have to reassess. But I, I have to say there is a ton of information that points in that direction, that um, this is not an issue that everybody should be in this continual state of panic over, and that um, we if we look rationally at what's going to happen over the next 100 years, climate change will be an issue, but it'll tend to be a small issue in comparison to all the other things that people are going to be dealing with. Uh, science got us here, and it certainly didn't happen overnight. Won't science solve this issue, or will it be social programs promised by uh, the political party of the day? Well, I do think science will make great contributions. Um, one of them might be inexpensive ways of removing CO2 from tailpipes and smokestacks. Um, if that happens, then the whole issue disappears. Um, also, we will learn more, continue to learn more about how the uh, climate system works and, and uh, how it responds to CO2. One of the difficulties in this issue, though, is that science itself has become so politicized, and that's partly because you have uh, governments that... Um, they commission these reports and then they heavily spin them and they make it very difficult for people to have a discussion after the report comes out and appreciate the range of scientific opinion that's out there. And instead, you well, get one message. It, it seems if you question it, headlines, yeah, if you question anything, that. if you question anything, then you're like a fossil fuel burning pig. You're at the opposite end of the spectrum. Yeah, see, everything I've told you so far, it's chapter and verse in the IPCC reports themselves. And... Yet, when reports like that come out or the Environment Canada report comes out, people don't get a sense of the range of views that emerge from a report like that because of the way it's spun by politicians and activists who want to use the report to push an agenda that they would have wanted to pursue even if the report had never come out. Uh, Is a change of behavior required here? Is it true? No pain, no gain here. Uh, Pollution is not free anymore. Uh, Get up on the wheel. It's going to cost you. Pollution's never been free in Canada, or at least not um, since the end of the Second World War when we began regulating it in all kinds of forms. So we've been paying for pollution control uh, all our lives. 
um, adding a carbon tax onto the existing system of regulation doesn't have a, a whole lot of effect at the margin. Um, any program that requires people to change their attitudes or change their behavior um, is almost doomed to fail just because people people respond to tangible incentives. They, they, they don't like to be browbeaten and they, they're not going to change their behavior just because you try to socially engineer a, a, a better soul in them. Um, so if we have to reduce CO2 emissions on a large scale, it's going to require policy intervention. And uh, uh, so that's that's the way economists think about it. Uh, just as the price of, of uh, carbon, uh, uh, the carbon tax that came in that was implemented by the federal government has jacked the price of, of gas in Ontario four and a half cents. Many have said this won't change behavior. This doesn't do anything. Uh, but it does make Canadians feel better. Oh, I'm paying four and a half cents a litre. I don't mind paying that because I'm, uh, I'm going to drive my uh, SUV here, but at least that makes me feel better uh, that I'm contributing something to the environment, even though it, it doesn't do a dang bit of good. Where are Canadians on this? Is this a kitchen table issue for an election? Uh, you know, do you think the, the, the current government is, is too deep into this file? It's very hard to predict... Um how people are going to feel about uh, an energy policy when they're actually paying for it. The provincial government thought nobody's going to mind if we jack up electricity prices because they know we're doing it for the cause of uh, the planet and it's all green energy and and we're being uh, good citizens about it. But when the electricity bills really went up, all of that stuff didn't count for anything. People were just angry about um, their electricity prices as they should have been because the the cost went up far more than they needed to to accomplish the environmental policy goals. So when it comes to the next election, I have no idea how it's going to play out, but I I do know that around the world, this has been a typical pattern that in response to survey questions, people will say, yeah, sure, we should deal with climate change and I'm willing to pay a bit to do it. But when the policy actually comes into place, the support evaporates pretty quickly. Uh, so is this a growing movement? Is this a growing concern? Uh, in other words, there's no pipelines being built now, so that therefore they will never be? Or is the Canadian public becoming fatigued in all of this, browbeaten? Hmm. Um, well, over the years that I've been working on this, I've, I've seen opinion move up and down in, in cycles, and it, it, people respond to what they're hearing. So when you have an interval where there's a lot of, um, PR and propaganda, then surveys show that yeah people get more concerned about it. Um, as for whether this is a, a permanent shift, I kind of doubt it. Um, I, at least I don't. I don't think that's the case. Um, but I guess we'll see in a few months when the election campaign gets going in earnest. And um, my suspicion, though, is that uh, climate will continue to be very far down the list of, of what people consider urgent issues in their lives. Uh, when uh, Gerald Butts, uh, head advisor for the prime minister and good friend of his, resigned uh, and he wrote his letter, he this was in regard to the Jody Wilson-Raybould SNC-Lavalin scandal, he finished off very oddly with, you know, it's important that we have to save the planet and completely went off topic and, and, and talked about what's really important here is saving the planet for our kids. Uh, then later realizing he was a past president of the World Wildlife Federation. Is this more about that than it is sound environmental policy? Is is this where it's coming from, from this government? 
Um, yeah, from this government, these are the signals they send. That um, there are a lot of people that talk using that language of, of "I'm going to go out and save the planet," uh, which I think is just grandiose and, and deluded. I would far rather hear from them. We think there's an important policy issue here, and we want to come up with rational strategies to address it. That's that's the sort of thing people are able to do, and, and Canadians are as good at that as anyone. But when you have people say, um, we need to save the planet, we need to save the world for our kids, there's a hint of extremism in there. And when, once you get that, then that usually means sensible cost-benefit analysis and, and rational thinking is going to get left aside. The article is Hold the Panic. Canada just warmed 1.7 degrees and thrived. It's by Ross McKittrick, uh, Dr. Ross McKittrick, Professor of Economics and CBE Fellow in Sustainable Commerce, Department of Economics and Finance at the University of Guelph. You can find the article in the Financial Post. Ross, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks, Scott. My pleasure. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. New Zealand's gun laws have gotten final ascend and uh, their police expect tens of thousands of firearms in a buyback program. Uh, this in result to, of course, the horrific shooting in Christchurch uh, in which 50 were were dead. Uh, these new laws uh, came into effect relatively quickly and with a lot of support, it seemed, from the people in New Zealand. How do our laws compare to theirs? and especially now that they have changed theirs. Let's bring in Tony Bernardo, Executive Director, Canadian Shooting Sports Association, and he is with us now. Tony, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Always good to be here with you, Scott. Do you find yourself uh, defending your hobby, defending your passion, your sport here every time there's a mass murder in the United States or anywhere in the world for that matter? Yeah, of course you do. You know, I mean, the, the, the media loves nothing more than sensationalism. So as soon as there's any kind of a mass shooting, you immediately have a reaction. However, you know, Canada already has one of the strictest gun control regimes in the world. And a lot of the things that they're doing in New Zealand, we've already got. Uh, the New Zealand legislation bars the circulation and use of most semi-automatic firearms, parts that convert firearms to semi-automatic, uh, magazines over a certain capacity, and some shotguns. Uh, that includes the gun used by the suspect in the Christchurch church shooting. You were talking about Canadian laws. How do ours compare to theirs, New Zealand's? Well, for, for one thing, of course, you know, in Canada, um, a semi-automatic long gun can only have a five-round magazine capacity. So any magazine in Canada that, that's more than that is a prohibited magazine. Uh, you know, the pistol magazines in Canada can only be 10 shots. We've had these, these laws in place for a, a great number of years now. And uh, certainly there's no um, stimulus on the government side to uh, change that. Uh, we've also uh, got you know, quite a large number of uh, military-type firearms that are already prohibited and a huge number of them that are already restricted, which means they're, they're treated legally the same as a, a pistol would be. How easy is it to modify? You talked about semi-automatics with a magazine uh, of five, and that was for, um, uh, for longer guns. Uh, how e- easy or difficult is it to manipulate those to change them, to change the magazines and such? Well, so- sometimes impossible, other times very difficult. Um, it, it varies. You know, the RCMP sets the standard 
for the deactivation of a magazine, and there are certain standards that you have to comply or the magazine is simply prohibited. Uh, by the way, possession of a prohibited magazine can get you four years in jail. That's if you don't use it. You just have to have it. Hmm. Uh, and But semi-automatic weapons, military-style weapons, are still legal in this country. Is that correct? Yeah, and we would prefer that you call them firearms because weapons are things that are used to hurt people. And the Canadian sports persons, they're not the ones that are hurting people. These things are used as sporting firearms for us. There are whole competitions uh, built up around semi-automatic firearms. They are extremely common in hunting. Remember, they're not new. They've been around since 1903 and in common use since then. So the number one duck gun out there is a semi-automatic. What about military-style type uh, rifles? You know, apparently you can can get them in Walmart, AR-15s, that sort of thing. You can't get them in any Walmart in Canada. I know, but you can in the States. What's the laws for Canada regarding that? Well, the AR-15 is a restricted firearm, right. which means it's treated exactly the same as a pistol, which means you have to have two licenses in order to get it. You have to have a permit to take it anywhere in Canada, um, even to take it to the shooting range. You, mm-hmm. you, need, you need a permit. It can only be discharged on a Section 29 shooting range or a Department of National Defense shooting range, where everything, of course, is supervised. Um, you can't hunt with an AR-15 in Canada. It's simply not illegal, not because it can't be done with the firearm, because the, the AR-15 is extremely common. It's the most popular sporting firearm in production in the world right now. Canada has treated the AR-15 as a restricted firearm for the last uh, 25 years, approximately. What would you say to those that think, you know, weapons like this, as you said, you're not allowed to hunt with them. That's not what they're designed to do. They're designed to kill people. That being no, that's, said, that's obviously obviously your members are, are, are doing it, you know, uh, for target shooting, this sort of thing. But Right. No, no, no firearm is designed to kill people. Firearms are designed to expel a projectile. When they do that, past that point, everything is up to the wielder of them. Firearm. Yeah, Mil- military. But I guess style. the parallel. I guess the parallel that I'm trying to draw mm-hmm. here is that if you have, right. you know, a hunting rifle that's designed to take down an animal, it's a little different than sawing it in half with an AR-15. AR- you know what I mean? <laughs> that's my, that's well, my point. <laughs> okay, but your point is absolutely 100 percent wrong because you see the AR-15, the cartridge on the AR-15, that the, the bullet, for lack of a better word, that it expels is in most places in Canada not legal for hunting deer or moose because it's not powerful enough. In many places in North America, many, you can't use that cartridge to hunt big game. It's not powerful enough to do it. The cartridge was originally designed to shoot groundhogs. Small game. AR-15s were originally designed to shoot groundhogs? The cartridge was designed to shoot groundhogs. Yeah. No, I'm talking about the weapon, though, because, again, you can put any cartridge in it, right? No, absolutely not. It takes it takes the 5.56 NATO cartridge. So the AR-15, is, the only cartridge you can put in it is is one that's that's supposed to shoot a squirrel? No, not a squirrel. It would, it would, it's for larger varmints than a squirrel. Okay. But yes, that but, is but this weapon was correct. designed for warfare. It's a military rifle. It wasn't designed for hunting, correct? 
I mean, I'm not trying no, to throw I, you under the bus here, but no, like, no, let's, let, let, let's, let's keep this open and honest here. I mean, the, these are military-style weapons. They're not hunting rifles. So, so, so let, let's, let's come down to something here. The lack of knowledge out there on firearms of these types is appalling. The information that you have where the cartridge of this was designed to kill people is absolutely incorrect. The original design of that cartridge is based upon a 222 Remington, which was designed to shoot groundhogs. No kidding, it really was. What was the it gun is- in the Christchurch killing used for? What was I'm it designed? Sure what was it designed for? The AR-15. Yeah, is designed to be a sporting firearm. It's not a military. No, but you're firearm. making it sound like you know it, it's 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 not powerful enough to kill animals yet. Someone used one to kill 50 no, people. No, you're, make, you're making it sound like it's a weapon of mass destruction. It's, it's just... Well, it's certainly not a pea shooter. I mean, that's, I think, the point we're making here, Tony. You know, there's, there's, there's no. firearms that you take out the back of your farm to shoot groundhogs with. Then there's AR-15s. And I don't no, think you got to be... That's not true. Tell me how I'm wrong, then. What, what's, oh, not, will, what, what's wrong? I'm trying. I'm trying to tell you how you're wrong, but you won't let me finish the sentence. Okay, so the deal is... The 223 cartridge that the AR-15 shoots is what governs the power of the firearm. That cartridge is like the engine in a car. The most common varmint cartridge in the world is the 223 Remington. So did the guy that killed the, the people in cartridge. did the people in Christchurch were they killed with a vermin bullet? Yes. There you go. That's exactly the point I'm trying to make. You're you're saying this like it's an incredibly powerful gun. It is not. The ammunition was designed to be lightweight, so you could carry a lot of it. But it's a military-style rifle designed to kill people, is it not? Is that not what an AR-15 is? It's a military-style rifle designed to kill? No, it's not designed to kill. It's designed to expel a projectile. You know, when you're shooting it in Canada... So's a pea shooter. So's a pea shooter. So's my kid's cap, you know, my kid's gun with the, you know, the thing on the end. Scott, you're trying to torque this, okay? When you have this firearm in Canada, it may only be discharged on a shooting range. Mm -hmm. It may only have a five-round magazine. In Canada, it's a five-round target rifle. You can't even take that gun out and shoot groundhogs with it. However, there are dozens and dozens of guns using exactly the same cartridge that are the most commonly used varmint rifle in the world. So you can torque this any way you want. What you're objecting to is the thing looks a certain way. What I'm trying to no, tell what you I'm is objecting to what I'm objecting way, to is doesn't. people that get their hands on these guns and then take out 50 people at a time in one swoop. Well, that's that's I think what people are upset about. I, I think you're right, and, and and I agree with you. I I am upset by that too. As a matter of fact, I, I, the, our community is as horrified as any other community anywhere in the world when something like this. So happens. what are your thoughts? What are your thoughts about New Zealand banning these? Well, I, I think it's an emotional knee-jerk reaction. I don't think it will have any effect at all on anything. Um, you know, people do evil things because people do evil things. Um, taking away one tool doesn't stop the evil thing from happening. 
And I think you can prove that when you look at 9-11, when you look at the Oklahoma City bombing, when you look at the 10 people that were run over by a van in Toronto last year. Evil is in people's hearts, and I really think that we need to start concentrating more on that than trying to selectively cut out individual tools. Because I'll tell you right now, they're not going to achieve what they have. Australia banned them 20 years ago. They haven't had a mass shooting since. No, that's absolutely not true. And I'll I'll challenge you to go to Wikipedia and put in Australian mass shootings. What happened was the government of Australia changed their definition of what a mass shooting is. And now a mass shooting has to be five or more people dead that are not of the same family. Just last last summer they had a mass shooting where seven people were, were shot to death. However, it was one family, so it doesn't count. Why and do you think go, why do you, you think go and look, it's there. Why do you think the people of New Zealand did this? Why do you think they feel differently than we do? I, I honestly can't speak to that because I'm not sure that they entirely do. I know that the government of New Zealand did this. Yeah, but the people let the them people... do it. I mean, there is a lot. I mean, there'd be public well, outcry if this was happening in the in North America. That it, hasn't it, it happened. Happen. That yeah. hasn't. We certainly haven't heard that side of the story coming from New Zealand. And you know, no, we you w- and you know, haven't. we would because the gun lobby is quite strong. So well, again, it, what, it, what do these people know that we don't? It's not very strong in New Zealand, you know, and one of the things you have to look at in New Zealand is there's approximately 14,000 firearms that are involved. You can take those firearms, you can pay compensation for them, and it doesn't break the bank. Wait a sec, I'm I'm reading right here, there are about 1.2 to 1.5 million firearms in New Zealand, according to gunpolicy.org. That's correct, but those are not the ones they're banning. The ones they're banning, that's about 14,000. 14,500. Yeah, military style, right? Yeah, correct. Right. Okay. So, so, so what do you think what do you what do you think those people know or, or get that we don't? What are they missing? What are they missing that North America I- I- isn't missing? Like I mean, what are they doing wrong here? What 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 do how come they feel strongly enough to do this and and North I, America doesn't? I can't doesn't? answer that question. I have no idea why they think this will be some kind of panacea. I really don't know the answer to that question. I can tell you that from experience, from everything we've seen in other countries, it doesn't solve anything. I mean, the Europeans have problems with mass shooting, and guns are almost totally forbidden, but they still have problems with them. You know, realistically, going after a particular thing and saying, oh, this tool is going to stop evil, yeah, right, good luck on that. Well, you know, again, you're never going to stop evil, I guess. But um, no. you know, when when it's loaded up in a hotel room and it's it's got an automatic weapon and firing at people like they were fish in a barrel, I mean, you know, that's a lot different than even someone driving a van down a, a, a you know a, a busy street. Um, you know, there's there's different levels of, of carnage, and this Absolutely. just seems to be maximum impact, maximum well, I, destruction. I, I'm, I'm not disputing there are different levels of carnage, and evil will always find a way. So let's take this and bring it back to Canada, where we have over a million pistols and restricted rifles in the country. Not 14,000, over a million that are used every day on shooting ranges all over Canada without problems. So you're going to go and take the stuff away 
from I think the number is about 700,000, 750,000 Canadians. You're going to take this stuff away from them on the speculation that it might help something? Might, might. Remember, there's no data on this stuff. Nobody can make a cause-effect relationship on this stuff. It simply can't be done. You go to Switzerland, where the number one sport in the entire country is target shooting, where Swiss nationals can have a full automatic assault rifle that they're issued by the government and 700 rounds of ammo in their home so that they're always in emergency readiness in case the country should ever be embroiled in a war. Now, maybe that's, that's a good thing. Maybe it's not. But shooting deaths are quite low in Switzerland. It's, it's the society that causes crimes. It's, it's tensions within the society that cause suicides and all kinds of other things. Going after a particular item is not going to change the evil in people's hearts. Um, again, I, I don't think anybody's trying, you know, thinking they can change the evil in anybody's heart. I, I think they, they're just trying to keep the carnage down to a minimum. And by having smaller weaponry, weaponry that isn't as, as violent or designed to do this is just seems common sense to a lot of people. And again, you okay. know, you, you look at the United States and just the amount of, of life that is lost every single year through guns or, or, or gun crime. I mean, it's, you know, you can't tell me if you had different rules that, that things might be different. And I'm not comparing, you know, Canada to the United States. Well, I understand, I, I understand our laws are, I, yeah, and I understand our laws are a lot more strict than what, than what theirs are. Uh, that being said, it just, it, you know, there, there's, there's, no sh- there's no signs of this showing down. There's, there's slowing down. There's no signs of, of people seemingly changing behavior. So how do we move forward with this? Where, where do you think this is going to go? Do you think it will just end up yeah. with slowly more and more restriction on these types of weapons? I mean, I can't see this problem going away. Yeah, again, I will say to you once again, they're firearms, not weapons. Weapons are used to hurt people, Okay. These things are used every day in Canada for target shooting. Nobody gets hurt. We're talking about, in Canada, five-round target rifles. That's all they are. They're a, a, a common deer rifle is more dangerous. Common deer rifle. I know you don't believe that to be true, but it is true. So the whole... And, sorry, go ahead. And if you like, I would be more than happy to take you to a shooting range and show you. No, I don't have the need. I'll take your word for it, Tony. <laughs> but Tony, <laughs> yeah, I have... but you're not you're not taking my word for it, Scott. Okay, but and I will be again. You know, I, I, again, it. you know, I um, I I just don't see the need for us to be buying and selling military style type weapons. Um, okay, but you... we because it was military style. You realize you're talking about ninety percent of the weapons ever made. <laughs> were based on military firearms. The number one hunting rifle in Canada, in the history of the country, is the Lee Enfield rifle that was used by Canada through two world wars and the Korean War. The number one rifle. It's a military rifle. Well, things have changed a lot since World War One. We'll say that, Tony. Uh, Tony Bernardo has been with us, Executive Director of Canadian Shooting Sports Association. Tony, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Anytime, Scott. Take care.
This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.